From the rising of the sun to the setting of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So we worship Him today on this Palm Sunday, and we are grateful. It's a great weekend for a parade, isn't it? The weather outside, amazing. Uh, We started the weekend with a parade yesterday morning, the Run for Change, uh, the radio run that we've been advertising to buy radios for the people in Sudan, and uh, and Chase and Casey and I ran in that race, and uh, then uh, as we were on our way there, we ran into another group on bicycles. They were on a parade that was going all the way to Austin, the MS-150, and then last night we had a baptismal parade. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, uh, we... Um, had a number who followed the Lord in scriptural baptism by immersion, prompting one little boy in the congregation to say, that's a lot of new sisters, he said, and he was right. And afterward, he said, good baptizing to me, and I appreciated his affirmation in that. The great thing about all three of those parades is they were not about us, really, were they? They were about um, God's greater work in our world. Wouldn't it be great if... Uh, Those who ran yesterday morning could uh, be a part of seeing people come to Christ in Sudan through those new radios. And what if they found a cure for MS? Wouldn't that be a great, great day? And and what if um, those who follow the Lord in baptism choose to serve Him for their whole lives? What I see in these parades is that the reality is greater even than the symbols. This is what life is really all about. J.R. Vassar, who was one of our Camp Tallowood preachers years ago, a number of times he's been there, has founded a church in Manhattan called Apostles Church, and uh, he spoke in Dallas recently about what he called hyper-reality. Hyper-reality is an embellished image um, of life created by a world saturated with images and symbols, and in this simulated world, images become objects, reality becomes hyper-reality. Umberto Eco founded this idea when he visited Disney World back in the 1970s and saw the little, the little crocodiles in the river and then he rode down the Mississippi and didn't see any crocodiles, in his words, alligators we would say, and ultimately said, well, Disney World is better than the Mississippi River. The, uh, the image, um, the hyper-real image is better than the reality Itself. Let me give you examples. If you went to a bookstore today, you could see covers of magazines with stunningly beautiful models on the covers. What you would realize is, as you looked at them, this has become sort of the standard for beauty in our world. The problem with that is that they were taken by professional photographers who used professional makeup artists who then took those photographs and edited them on a computer and ultimately the person who was in the picture doesn't look very much like the picture that's on the cover but that becomes the standard and there's a certain tyranny and some people say well if I can't look like that or worse yet if you can't look like that then I can't be happy. In the same way, uh, our children watch um, the Disney movies and they see that, that everything, everybody always ends up living happily ever after. The cartoons are happier than the people themselves. Or maybe you and your kids and grandkids grew up like my kids did with the Cosby show and said, why can't we live in a family like that? Well, the reason is, just think about it. They were a doctor and a lawyer, but they were always home. How does that work? I mean, it's hard to imagine that being true. And their kids always obeyed. I mean, I'm up for that. And, and then 
when you think about it, they always resolved all of their conflicts in about 30 minutes or so. And, and Cliff and Claire were never unhappy when they went to bed. They were always giggling and smiling. And, and somehow, um, you know, when we look at that, we say, well, that's the way family ought to be. And if family can't be that way, then I'm just not going to be happy. But the problem is it creates a crisis within us, a craving for something which is not real but hyper-real. Hyper-reality is not real. Neither is it new. Even in Jesus' day, there were those who wanted Him to be king, but when they thought about what being a king meant, they had a very different idea than Jesus did. They wanted Jesus to give them bread, but when He said, I'll give you the bread of life, they all walked away. They would have been content just to receive water, but He said, I want to give you living water. They wanted to crown Him as king, but Jesus looked beyond their actions to their intentions. He still examines our motives as we worship Him. Would you open the Scriptures with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, and then I'm going to read verses 37 through 42 as well, 43 as well. Today we'll look at the first of three crowns, the token crown of popularity. Then Friday night as we gather together, and I should mention Maundy Thursday, but Friday night we'll look at the terrible crown of thorns. And then next weekend we'll look at the triumphant crown of life. We'll be studying in the book of Revelation together next weekend for the main event, which we call Resurrection Sunday. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, there's a large crowd of people in Jerusalem, they've gathered for a feast, but they've heard that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and so they, they're curious about Jesus, so much so that the chief priests want to kill Lazarus again. They just want him to stay dead this time, and they want to kill Jesus as well. And we pick up the story in verse 12, the next day... The great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of him. Ultimately, we find in verse 36 that he leaves the crowd and hides from them. That's not often told on Palm Sunday, but we should note what the Scripture says. Then verse 37 says, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn. And I would heal them 
And Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So they welcomed him with worship on that first Palm Sunday. It seems fitting when they were doing that, they were saying more than we like you. Their, their image of Jesus was that he would be this delivering general who would eradicate the Romans from Jerusalem and set them free. And so beneath what they are saying are political undertones. The last time we know of the people of Jerusalem bringing their palm branches They came out to meet Judas Maccabeus after he had cleansed the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes. It was a call for a Savior, but for a particular kind of Savior. There's a great crowd there for the feast, but they want to configure Jesus into the kind of king that they want. A king who will give them bread, a king that will give them water, a king who will, as somebody said in a country song, give us that free bubble up and uh, that rainbow stew. They want Jesus to satisfy all of their physical and political needs. But Jesus came for more than that. In fact, in that great crowd of people, there were some Pharisees like Nicodemus who had already decided that Jesus probably was who he said he was, but they were afraid. They were afraid to speak up. They were afraid to openly declare their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because if they did, they might be thrown out of the synagogues. And John gives this telling indictment of them in verse 43. He says... They loved the praise of men more than praise from God. The word is actually glory. They loved to get glory from men more than they loved the glory of God himself. And as we look at the different people who met Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, the the great crowd and the disciples who are clueless and and uh, the uh, Pharisees who come out, and the great group of, of people who met Jesus that day, what we discover is that we share in their relational difficulties with Jesus. We're not unlike that crowd of people. And Palm Sunday raises an important question for us. Is Jesus the means to our own ends? Or is Jesus... The end itself. Is he the omega? The alpha and the omega? Or is Jesus just another way to get what we want? Because it seems to me that we're always looking for another entertainer who's going to to entertain us. We're always looking for another athlete who is finally going to lead our team to the promised land. We're always looking for another politician who's going to finally make the country the kind of country we want it to be. But... The Jesus who is King of kings is not necessarily the king we want. Everybody wants a ruler until they get one. 
Everybody wants a leader until they get one. He's not the king we want, but he is the king we need. And while he resists the token crown of popularity, he comes today to reconfigure our expectations, if you will, to rock our world, to change the way we see things, to change the way we live, until finally we see that Jesus Christ is not just a means to our ends. No, He is the end in itself. And the only one who is worthy, not just of our lip service, but of our life service. What did we come to offer to Him today? Jesus resists our lip service. In fact, as they say all of the right things there in chapter 12, verse 12, they, they begin to greet Him with the palm branches. Hosanna. This is not God save the King. This is be our King and save us. Save us from these Romans. Change this world setting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They're acknowledging that he is King. This is not the first time. If you remember in the Gospel of John, the first chapter doesn't even pass before Nathaniel, one of the, of the twelve, recognizes Jesus because Jesus says to him, I saw you when you were standing under the tree. And, and he looks at Jesus and says, you're the King. You are the King of Israel. You are, the, you are the one. You are the king. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus knows he is the king of Israel. But in chapter 6, verse 15, after Jesus feeds the people and they try to forcibly make him their king, Jesus has to escape from them. Remember that in John chapter 6, verse 15, and then later in his conversation with Pilate in chapter 18, verses 35 to 37, he says, Yes, I am a king. I'm just not the kind of king that you were looking for. Jesus was very, very popular. He had been popular before, remember when he was feeding the crowds, but the popularity has returned, so much so that his enemies lament the fact that the whole world has gone after him. And Jesus looks at them in this moment and he means more than they do by popularity. Jesus came not just for popularity, but to demonstrate His authority. So Tom Janad years ago wrote an article in a, a magazine about Jesus. It was right after Mel Gibson made his movie. And he said, Jesus is all the rage right now. He's on magazine covers, books are being written about Him, movies are being made about Him showing His crucifixion, and people feel obligated to go, and they, they are all wrapped up in Jesus. In fact, he wrote, Jesus may never have been more popular than He is right now, but His followers say that His popularity is not as important as His authority. Jesus has been popular for over 2,000 years. He'd been popular for a long time, but Jesus was never interested in just winning a popularity contest or becoming what people wanted Him to be. No, no. His, his followers say that it's really about Jesus becoming ruler. They, they obey Him, or at least they say they do, Tom Janad wrote. They obey Him, or at least they say they do. Jesus Christ is Lord you know, he wrote. I have no idea what Tom Janad believes. 
But I know this, that Jesus came to show us that He really is the King, but a different kind of King. And even by fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and coming in on a donkey instead of on um, a powerful war horse, He was making a statement. He was saying, your King comes to you in humility. So for all of those hangers-on, all of those sycophants who were looking for Jesus somehow to become this powerful person so that they could vicariously participate in His power, so they could name drop and say, I was there when Jesus came into the city. Jesus knows that some of these same people in chapter 19 are going to say, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. Crucify him, they say. How fickle are the crowds. It's easy, it's easy sometimes to miss the point that Jesus came in humility, that Jesus comes in peace, doesn't he? Riding on a donkey, he's making a statement about peace. And the rest of that Zechariah quote is that Jesus came, the king comes, the Messiah comes to bring peace to all the nations. And on cue, it says, even the Greeks begin to show up in verse 20. All the world has gone after him. But what are they really looking for? You'll see it in the magazines this week. Somebody will put Jesus' face on the cover of a magazine and they'll do a survey and some 80% of Americans will say they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And 35-40% to 40% will say that they are born again Christians. But Jesus is more than a politician. He's not an entertainer. Jesus does not come to wow us. Jesus comes to save us. I think you hear it in Joseph Bailey's little poem about the donkey that Jesus rode. Are you familiar with Joseph Bailey? He's a bit avant-garde in his poetry. He writes, King Jesus, why did you choose a lowly donkey to carry you to ride in your parade? Had you no friend who owned a horse, a royal mount with spirit for king to ride? Why choose a donkey, small, unassuming Beast of burden, trained to plow, not carry kings. King Jesus, why did you choose me? A lowly, unimportant person to bear you in my world today. He goes on to say, I'm poor and unimportant, trained to work, not carry kings, let alone the king of kings. And yet you've chosen me to carry you in triumph in this world's parade. King Jesus, keep me small. So all may see how great you are. Keep me humble so all may say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not, what a great donkey he rides. It's not about us, is it? It's not, I said to Calvin Miller the other day, I said, I've got to stop name dropping. He said, you know, I was telling Billy Graham the same thing. <laughs> At some point, we, we have to stop getting our identity vicariously through the successes of others. The fact, it's, it's in vogue these days to say that we're followers of Jesus, but it is still not in vogue to make Him the center of our lives. So Jesus becomes the means to the end. If I follow Jesus, won't He make me more successful in my business? If I follow Jesus, won't He guarantee me that I will live like the little girl in the movie Tangled, happily ever after? In Disney, even the ogres live happily ever after. But Jesus wants us to live with Him ever after. 
And that means more than you and I can imagine. Jesus resists. He reconfigures our conception of kingship. So in verse 24, he says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will remain alone. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. Wherever I am, he says, my servant must also be. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, he says in verse 32. And when he says lifted up, he is not talking about being praised. He's talking about being crucified. And they know that so well that they think he misunderstands his messiahship. And they patronize their prince. They pat their messiah on the head and say, I just wish you understood, Jesus. That's not the kind of messiah we're going to make you into. But Jesus is no Gumby God. He will not be shaped after our image. He is trying to shape us after his He resists our token crown of popularity. But notice that he receives not our lip service, but our life service. He's looking for people who will actually believe in him. And that's why we're shocked when we read on the next page of my Bible in verse 37 when it says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still wouldn't believe in him. That's why in verse 36 he goes into hiding again from the great crowd. Because Jesus wants them not just to bless him, he wants them to believe in him. And by believe in him, he means John chapter 1, verse 12, that everyone who believed in him, everyone who believed in his name, to those he gave the power to become the children of God. For God so loved the world, 3.16 says, that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We can bless him with lip service or we can believe in him and serve him with our lives. And the crowd doesn't quite understand what that is about. They believe, but in a strange kind of way. Ken Follett in a novel called Triple tells about a man, he says, who believes in communism about the way most people believe in God. He wouldn't be surprised or disappointed if it weren't true. And meanwhile, it doesn't change the way he lives. And that is no belief at all. If Our believing doesn't change the way we live. If it doesn't change the way we give. If it doesn't change the way we serve. If our believing leaves us the same, then we may wonder like the fickle crowd whether we have believed at all. Chad Walsh says he he thinks the devil has gone out of the business of trying to convert us to agnosticism because he's content for us just to catch a mild case of Christianity that will inoculate us against catching the real thing. God wants more for us. And why why did those verses 42 and 43 who actually believed, why didn't they go public? Why does Nicodemus come to Jesus at night and praise Him as the teacher of Israel and walk back into the darkness without committing his life to Him? Why when they say, have any of the rulers believed in Him in chapter 7, does Nicodemus not raise his hand and say, I have believed in Him? Why does Nicodemus wait until after Jesus is dead to buy the spices for Him? He is more concerned about the glory of men than he is about the glory of God. And as you join the parade, 
understand this, that life is not about what people think about us. We can be driven by that, can't we? We can be more worried about what people think than about what God thinks. Maybe you saw that Sports Illustrated article earlier this year, you sports fans, where they were talking about home field advantage. This has been an interesting concept through the years. Why is it that teams are more likely to win on their home field? Lots of theories about that. They're more comfortable in their own place. That's actually been proven wrong in this study. Well, maybe it is that when their, when their fans are shouting louder than the other fans, that inspires them to play better. That also has been proven false. What they've discovered is that there's a bias in the officials. My apologies to those of you who serve as referees, umpires, and judges. But what they say is the crowd doesn't influence the team so much as the crowd influences the officials. The officials, in a tight moment in the game, don't want to disappoint the crowd around them. So they're less likely to call a foul on the home team. They're less likely to call the opposing team's pitch a strike than the home team's pitch. The truth is that they care more about what the people think than about the truth. And that is a dangerous place to be. Look, Jesus has been famous for 2,000 years. But following Him does not guarantee us fame. And though Jesus is popular, that doesn't mean that His followers will be popular if we live out what He called us to believe. One of my favorite people is John Perkins, who was so active in Mississippi back in the 60s and 70s. He found himself in jail for some of the stances that he took later when he was on his way to speak as the keynote speaker at a public function. Somebody asked, the chauffeur actually, Paul Metzger, asked John Perkins, so how does it feel to be famous? He said, oh, it's, it's odd. Here in Mississippi, every time they quote the word reconciliation, they always put my name in there as though I invented the word. But he said, I don't put much stock in my fame. When I look around Mississippi and see that my being famous has not built a single person a home to live in, yeah, I don't put much stock in, in fame. It's not about us. The young man who organized the race yesterday morning is a very fast runner. When I got there yesterday, I said, are you going to run in the race? He said, I'm not here to run today. I'm here to raise money for Sudan. And I thought in this 17-year-old, I saw a maturity that Jesus is still looking for in his disciples. He's looking for us to live our lives not for ourselves, but for Him. And when we come to that place, as the little song says, we lift our voices, we lift our hands, we lift our lives up to You. We are an offering. We are an offering. And Jesus is not a means to our end. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Serve Him with your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of worshiping you today. Call us out of our self-serving, self-satisfying, proud choice of, of life and fill us instead with the humility of Christ who as King of Kings chose to ride on a donkey. We're amazed that you choose to use people like us. But we pray that you will. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.